The difference between forging a transactional relationship with a company and a transformative relationship and the degree to which you can do that, you'll be successful in this space. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Nonprofit Marketing Unplugged podcast. Today in the studio, I'm joined by Kia Kroom, a nonprofit fundraising badass. And don't forget those Z's, as she likes to say. Kia, thanks for joining us in the studio. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I know our guests are already intrigued by the intro. And so let's give them a little bit more <laughs> of your background. How, uh, what, what's kind of your background? What's the squiggle that's really gotten you to where you are now as a nonprofit fundraising badass? Don't forget the Z's. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so happy to share. I'll give you the short of a, a long, colorful story. I am a journalist. I wanted to be a broadcast anchor. I wanted to come through folks' televisions like, you know, the news anchor. I would see when my mother would watch the morning news when, you know, she was getting me ready for school. Um, beautiful sister was on KRON, which is a Bay Area network. And I just thought that she was just oh so glamorous and I wanted to be her, you know, from the time I was like three. So I went to school thinking that I was going to be a broadcast anchor, bringing you news or weather or something, right? And something happened, interesting, something really interesting happened because civic engagement and service was a real value in my household. I am very public about the fact that I grew up in generational poverty, but despite that, we were taught to be civically engaged. We were taught to share and share alike Mm. and to do our part to make a difference in the community. My mother ingrained that in us. So I'm off at college, majoring in journalism, writing for newspapers and was concerned about poverty and homelessness and things like I'd always been. And I got involved with a local homeless services organization, simply started volunteering. And the rest, as I always say, is her story. The organization asked me, you know, about my writing and said, would you consider helping us to write a grant? I thought, "Mm, I have no idea what that is. But if I look at it, I'm pretty, my sister's pretty savvy. If it's, you know, deals with writing, I'm certain I can do it. And that was my crash course. And $200,000 later, after that successful grant request, they were offering me a job. And... I was in a dilemma because it's like, okay, I still want to be glamorous and on people's (laughs) TVs and things, but I really like knowing that I just made this impact. So what do you think I decided to do? Combine the two. Yeah. I decided to embark on the career as a fundraiser and the rest is her story. Here I am. Nearly half a million dollars raised later. That's incredible. And just just for clarity, you said half a billion dollars, right? Yeah, nearly half a billion dollars raised. Didn't happen. They, you know how they say Rome wasn't built in a day? It wasn't built in a day. We're talking, I'm 22 years in the game. 
and I've worked with community-based nonprofits all over the country from California, where I'm the best state in the world, California, on down through the South, on up, you know, the Mid-Atlantic. I mean, I've worked with some really, really dope agencies all over and really done what I consider to be work that I've just been blessed enough to do, you know, and help in marshal critical resources for not just nonprofit missions, but also movements. Absolutely. And it's an incredible career. And I'm excited for our listeners to learn from that career and the experiences you've had, and then also get into some of the new things that you're, you've launched and now you're investing in, you know, even 22 years in. But before we get into the new fun stuff to talk about, I'd love to kind of get your view and vantage. You know, you have a unique vantage point, 22 years in the game. How has fundraising evolved and what hasn't changed? What have you seen throughout those 20 years that has changed and what hasn't changed? What still stays consistent even today? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is the advent of social media. I want to say that there were some things going on back then. I don't know. I don't quite remember if we were like post MySpace. I got started with this stuff in, yeah, 2001-ish. And I mean, we didn't have Facebook, right? We didn't have IG. To my knowledge, I I don't know that we had LinkedIn um, or not. I can't really remember. I'm dating myself, right, and sharing this. So definitely the advent of social media, um, capitalizing off of um, community and peer networks Mm -hmm. and things of that. I would say in addition to that, the diversity factor has changed to a degree. Do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. But it's a lot more colorful now, 20 years later than it was back then. Back then, a lot of the rooms that I was in as a early 20-something, mid-20-something year old fundraiser, and I was doing all of the things. I was doing professional development and grants trainings and all of this stuff. And I was one of one in a lot of cases. So the diversity is encouraging. Social media makes it fun. And just the innovation. I think that back then we were just doing like snail mail appeals. There wasn't any sort of emphasis on like omnichannel. I think like omnichannel was a fax. Right. And uh, <laughs> you got you got a fax, a phone call and some mail. Yeah, that's exactly. It. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I would say those three things have put a little spice in, you know, the mix. And I'm excited to get into each of those. I want to touch on the one you mentioned. You said um, the we have a more colorful or diversified fundraising base. And I know you mm-hmm. said you were one of one back when you started. And I know that's shaped your career and kind of following your story and reading about your journey. How has that shaped now what you're doing? You know, being one of one, one, seeing the industry change, but we still have a long ways to go. But now you're, you're sitting in a position of advocacy on behalf of it continuing to diversify. And would love to hear more about that passion and that work that you're committed to doing for our sector. Absolutely. So the way I look at it is this. I've had some pretty harrowing experiences, right? Um, Some hair raising experiences with discrimination, with 
um, a lack of inclusion with you know, white supremacist cultures within nonprofits because we know that there's this chasm where in fun, there's fundraising and then there's nonprofits. And when you look at both, there's still this dearth of color in the C-suite, whether we're talking VPs or chief development officers or whether we're talking nonprofit CEOs, right? So that pain point, my observation is it's come from that dearth at the leadership level and folks like me, your black and brown counterparts have found ourselves in more junior roles or in more programming functions where we didn't necessarily have agency in any content strategies, mm-hmm. right? We might not have been given a forum, even if our role c- called for it, right? Even if our job description Um, made mention of, you know, playing this external affairs type role. I've worked in environments where it was played safe and, you know, the white male executive was the more frontline responding to donors and so forth. So the reason that I'm such an ardent advocate is for a couple of reasons. Number one, people that look like me and that have a colored story like I have, I've got something to say. Right. I've got incredible lived experience. There's not much you can tell me about poverty. Right. I lived there. I survived it. There isn't a whole lot you can tell me about young folks in the juvenile justice system. I was there. I might not look like it, but it was a couple of mug shots on a sister, you know, as a teenager. And I didn't go through, again, living in poverty. Right. I didn't go through what I went through to not have the means and resources to talk about those lived experiences and to co-create within organizations that say, we want to do something about these kinds of experiences. We want to provide interventions for young people like you. Well, you can't do that without having someone with my lived experience be a part of that strategy. And I feel like that's what a lot of organizations have been doing and have been prescriptive and, you know, what they think is best and not leveraging folks like me that have those experiences and that proximity to nuance that strategy and even make the story story or the strategy all the more compelling. So that's where my advocacy comes from, right? And then the other part of it is, if you talk about a moral case, if you talk about a business case, I think that what I shared a moment ago was more around the the business case and in some parts, the moral case. But if you look at it from a purely business case, right? It's like watching your favorite basketball game or football game. And you've got this rich, rich talent that's on the bench that never gets an opportunity to get off the bench and make a play. And that one or a couple of times when they're given that opportunity, they hit a home run and, you know, the crowd goes wild and the reporters want to hear from them. I've been in those experiences where people are like, "Okay, where have you been? You're a lot more interesting than 
you know, and I want to hear from you and hear about your perspective and your lived experiences. This is the kind of stuff that as a donor makes me want to write that check, right? So even from a business case, I just think that that diversity, that, that lived inclusion inside of nonprofits, inside of fund development teams is vital, not just for the good of culture, but for the good of an organization surviving and engaging new constituencies and diverse donors. Yeah. I think that perspective is so important and I appreciate the clarity that diversity is not just a culture initiative. It's a growth initiative. It actually is aligned to the impact the organization's trying to make or the fundraising objectives you have or the marketing you have. Having that diversity, not only within the team, but within the stories being shared is so important. So I appreciate you uplifting that. And I know the one project I want to highlight is, I believe it was in 2021, you started your own platform to really highlight the diverse specifically Black voices within the fundraising profession. You know, hey, we're sitting on the bench, so why not bring those to the forefront? So you kind of created your own all-star team uh, and gave them that platform. Could you share more about this project, what you've learned through the last 18 months, and what you're hoping for in the future? Absolutely. So in 2021, I started podcasting. I have to be honest with you, I wasn't even a big podcast consumer didn't know much about it, sat in, this is my executive office, okay, and I stand by that, sat in my executive home office for hours, you know, trying to figure out how to do this because I had something to say, right? I wanted to talk about my experiences. I wanted to engage with community and possibly identify other folks that felt and had experienced what I was feeling and experiencing. And that's exactly what happened. I started talking to colleagues in my field and asking them to join me for conversations. And they weren't necessarily all content-related conversations. Some of them were conversations just about their lived experiences, navigating environment. How do you care for yourself personally, right? Like, what? how do you nurture and attend to yourself? Like, there's one episode of... And, and I neglected to plug my own show. It's called the Black Fundraisers Podcast. And I found myself not only, like I said, wanting to engage with community, but I wanted to elevate Black voices, right? Those unsung Black fundraising professionals that are making stuff happen. But there's this element of, you know what? What I went through growing up, the circumstances that I lived in was not in vain because if I can marshal resources inside of an organization to help improve someone else's circumstances or to help them get a better outcome than I might have realized as a young person, I couldn't ask for anything better. Right. So I wanted to give face and voice to those other unsung black fundraising professionals and leaders that we don't often hear from. 
because maybe what's happening in their organization is similar to what's happening in mine where they're being left on the bench. Absolutely. And it's an incredible podcast and platform to dive further into this, whether you just want to give you want to dig more into this conversation we're having. I highly recommend it. And if you're listening to this podcast, we know you listen to podcasts. So definitely go out and check that podcast out. Thank you. The Black Fundraisers podcast is the name of that. Yes. Hey friends, Emily here from Feather. Feather's nonprofit marketing platform turns your if-only wish list into reality. Feather Flights, our marketing automation tool, helps you design multi-channel campaigns and automated engagement journeys. Feather is trusted by over 1,300 nonprofits, and we help you unlock more time, more results, and ultimately, more confidence with real-time ROI reporting at the campaign level so you know what works. Removing the guesswork from your 2023 plan. Book time with one of our digital strategists today and learn how you can unlock more in 2023 with Feather by visiting feather.co. That's feather without the last e dot co. The one thing I want to kind of transition here is that you aren't only an advocate for diversity within the fundraising and philanthropic industry. You are an all-star and an example. You like at the we started this off, you've raised over a half a billion dollars for organizations and causes. So I'd be remiss not to press into your experience and help our audience learn from that. Sure. So I'd love to know from you when a fundraising campaign or initiative that you were part of went really well and what you learned from that that maybe our audience could take away from it as well. Yeah. So one particular campaign that was highly effective. And we'll and I'll try to pull out a couple of reasons why it was kind of one of those things where it wasn't necessarily popular at the time where I was working, but it was really an initiative that I thought was appropriate, and that is an initiative rooted in racial justice. At the time, I was working inside of an organization that was trying to find and, you know, kind of in a Frankenstein walking with its hands out kind of way, its identity within this whole racial justice, racial reckoning season, right? How do I refer to my constituents? Do I say black? Do I say black and brown? Do I say all children? It's like the all lives matter. Do I say black lives matter? All lives matter. You know, how do I talk about legacy history and past and not lose some donors that might not have really understood the organization's connection to, you know, civil rights and, and history? How do I bring that to the forefront? Will it make some folks uncomfortable that might not necessarily be comfortable confronting or concretizing their views on racial equity or racial justice? It was a lot of internal churn and questioning. And I was pretty adamant about seizing this moment to crystallize a message of, yes, racial justice is of critical importance to us and building a campaign around that, one that was omni-channel, 
creating marketing assets that really spoke to the organization's why with regard to racial equity, because if a racial justice rather, because if we are an organization that's championing the interest of young people and children, how can we do that without talking about that historically marginalized population of such, right? Being black and brown. So in really advocating and for someone watching this podcast that would say, you know what? I don't know how that would go over well. I could push and I might be out of a job, you know, or I'm not really comfortable adopting a posture or a position on something like that. It might seem a little controversial. I want to qualify this and say, I was at a point in time where it was just whatever. If I'm going to be walked to the door, I'm going to be walked to the door. I'd rather be walked to the door for standing on something that I deeply, deeply believe in than choosing not to say anything, right? And that was my position on that. And I advocated and I collaborated with some wonderful people and created content that looked a lot different than some of the content we produced in the past that centered on equity and racial justice. And it was one of the most well-performing campaigns in the organization's history. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's to date, but at least, you know, over goodness, for a significant period of time, it performed incredibly well. We leveraged a Google ad grant. We had record traffic. We had record visitors. We had record conversions. It was just crazy because all because we seized an opportunity to really walk in sync with the times and elevate to the top or to bring to the forefront that rich DNA that we had rooted in racial justice, racial equity, right? Was it provocative? Perhaps it was. Was it new? Absolutely. Was it comfortable for everybody to do? No, but it's not going to be, right? And we have to build our muscles, not just for matters concerning equity, but to test and try new things, I think. Absolutely. And I think it's an incredible testimony, not only due to the the type of content that you're doing, which was pressing into an area that wasn't in areas you had normally uh, spoken about as that organization. But it's also, there's a lot of lessons to be learned for organizations even outside of that space. It's like understanding what your true purpose is and being very clear and elevating that, even if you think it's controversial or if it's not going to resonate fully with your traditional audience, but being clear on what you're for And then translating that, that's really what marketers and fundraisers do is we translate this purpose into something that people can connect with. That's powerful. And I've heard time and time again, in addition to your story, Kia, when we actually just step up and say, this is what we're for, and we're going to communicate that through the campaign, those are the campaigns that have the highest results. And so I appreciate that shared testimony. No, this is great. And that's encouraging to know. I didn't know that at the time. I just knew, like, listen, if there were ever a time to talk about this, it's now. And if we're not going to seize this opportunity, then when? 
Yeah. One of the other roles you had in your career was recently at the Children's Defense Fund, and you were the director of strategic partnerships there and worked closely with corporations and companies and how they partnered with your mission. What guidance do you have for those looking to form strategic partnerships and how does those relationships or how you manage them differ from what you would do with individual givers? Yeah, so managing those relationships, you're working with corporations, right? There's bureaucracy, right? Versus working with a high stakes donor, maybe he or she or them, Maybe they check in with their partner if they have a partner before they stroke a big check. Maybe they don't. Right. Perhaps the book starts and ends with, you know, him, her or them. Right. In a company, the book can stop and end with, you know, a number of actors. So there's some consensus building that has to take place. Right. Strategic partnerships is such that you apply the same donor life cycle, right, that you apply to that individual donor, you apply it to that company. You identify who you want to work with. You engage them, right? You cultivate them, right? You solicit them. And then you celebrate when they say yes, everybody celebrates, right? It's the same concept. However, you know that you there's there's some high likeliness that you're going to be met with some bureaucracy, right? With some because of the nature of the consensus building. What I would say to organizations or to fundraisers or marketer whoever's listening and wanting to play more in that space and be successful is to be creative, right? What are some ways that a company can engage with your organization, your mission, and your constituents, right? And have a great experience. If you're a food bank, what opportunity can you leverage to bring corporate community in and show them a day in life of the work and leverage them to be a part of your impact, right? The degree to which you can do that is going to make the difference between whether you engage that corporation and they say, okay, well, here's a $5,000 check. We like you and we like what you do versus saying, well, here's a $100,000 check because we love you and our employees love you. And I've had this happen, right, where, you know, a company has a retrenchment in its corporate responsibility bucket or its marketing bucket, and the big bad company exec tells the employees and the functional leads, we're going to have to cut our budget, which unfortunately means we've got to cut some of the funds that would go to X organization. And they're like, heck, no. Bro, we need to find it from wherever we need to find it because that organization is incredible. They're a food bank. They're feeding 50,000 people, you know, in a quarter. We experienced it with our own two eyes. No way. We got to find it. And I've seen organizations, you know, those functional leads find those dollars. The difference is what I call 
The difference between forging a transactional relationship with a company and a transformative relationship and a degree to which you can do that, you'll be successful in this space. Absolutely. And it's about, I think, identifying, as you called out, like, what is the the stakeholders interest? So if it's a committee or a consensus group, what is their interest in the mission Absolutely. as well? And so sitting alongside them at this at the table, this is what I'm hearing. I'm just like reflecting on because it it's I think it's really brilliant is saying, hey, how is what our goals are as a corporation aligned with the mission that's over there and helping them find where those circles overlap? And when you do that, that's when you have strength and resilience in those partnerships. Absolutely. Appreciate that shared uh, experience. It's finding that nexus, right? Finding a nexus between what that company cares about and what you do and how you can meet in between and do it exponentially or, you know, just collaboratively to realize some kind of impact or what I call a significant social return. Significant social return, SSR. I like that as a benchmark and even helping organizations think about how to measure that effectively. Yeah. We've touched on this a little bit and I use the word sometimes interchangeably. I know you mentioned it in kind of an and statement. But there's this dynamic between fundraising and marketing or fundraising or marketing within organizations. As a professional fundraiser, I would love to get your opinion. What's the difference in fundraising and marketing and how do they complement each other? And where are the overlaps? Yeah, so we talked about this and I think I shared with you that for some reason I can't really figure it out why it almost feels like Marketing is kind of a dirty word in the nonprofit sector. It's like, I'm being so honest. Like, I've never really, in my 22 years in this, remember hearing counterparts, well, well, how are we going to market this? You know, it's like, well, you know, how are we going to kick this off? Or you know, no one ever calls it that, right? And marketing is so vital, right? We talked a minute about omni-channel right? The importance of having an omni-channel presence across platforms, social, snail mail, right? Email, folks that have some money to invest, CTV, right? All of these different channels. And it's important to leverage these platforms and these channels to not only reach the folks that support you, but to Peak the interest of folks that don't, those people that you want to get in relationship with, right? And you want to go to them via the channels they hang out, right? When I'm having conversations with nonprofits most often, sometimes we make that mistake of trying to force people in a chat. No, you want to go to where they're hanging out at, right? So I think it's a relationship of interdependency, you got to get those pivotal messages, those compelling messages, those compelling touches, those compelling glimpses of who you are organizationally, what you stand for, how you're making a difference, and how an ordinary citizen or even a not so ordinary citizen can be enlisted to help, right? And you can't accomplish that without marketing, even though we don't call it that, right? Haven't quite figured that one out. 
with marketing, you can do all the marketing in the world, right? However, if you don't have, by my estimation, if you're a nonprofit and you don't have a strategy that really centers on eliciting the behavior change that you want to elicit from your existing donors and those new prospects, what do you ultimately want them to do, right? I just feel like it's a real relationship of interdependency at the end of the day. Absolutely. And our guests that have been on previously and guests that are even coming up in the future We've had that same struggle of like, there is a difference. I know Mallory Erickson and I are actually talking about this like in 20 minutes. <laughs> and so I'm where it's like, there is a difference, but there's much more of this collaboration between the two capability sets. Yeah. And both capabilities are important. I think where the disconnect comes within organizations or even the silos or kind of disconnected experiences that we provide our supporters comes when we assume capabilities as identities. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I'm a fundraising professional or I'm a marketing professional versus mm -hmm. I am someone working on behalf of this mission doing marketing. And so there is a collaboration of, yes, we should do fundraising and marketing together to accomplish those goals. And you kind of shared the same experience. It's, it's, it's not a this or that, or they are the same thing. It's a, it's a collaboration and capabilities to actually reach that outcome. Absolutely. And your fundraising, obviously, being your tactics that dovetail into your or support or complement your marketing, I just see them as really, really interdependent. And I mean, in most organizations that I've worked in, you had folks that did fundraising and you had comms, right? I, as a fundraiser, did a fair amount, have done a fair amount of content writing for comms colleagues or in partnership with comms colleagues, right? And when I didn't have comms and it was just the small development shop, you know, I had to do the work of both, right? So... Just a complex, just a complex and interdependent relationship. And I think that if people adopt the posture that you just described, like I'm an individual that's mission aligned inside of this fantastic organization and I happen to do this right versus splitting hairs, you know, I mean, we it is what it is. Right. I hate to say that it is what it is, but it but it is what it is. It's an interdependent relationship. Yeah. And everybody's part, you know, makes it work. Right. Absolutely. And it's that collaboration. And I think yeah. that's what we keep coming back to. It's like yeah. even as we think about fundraising, we're collaborating with others outside the organization to accomplish a purpose. Absolutely. Internally, we're collaborating together to accomplish a purpose. Even within the diversity equation, it's not this or that. It's together, collectively Absolutely. collaborating, we can accomplish these purposes. And that's been a thread that's run deep through our conversation that I want our listeners to walk away from. Like you listening to this, it's, it's about finding those overlaps. It's not about a this or that. And that goes into everything that we discussed today. And Kia, I'm so grateful that you shared your experience. Hey, I'm William Henry. I'm the content marketing manager here at Feather, 
And I'm here to tell you about an amazing resource we have available for those of you doing purposeful marketing, the in-flight briefing. Every Tuesday, we'll send to your inbox the essential bite-sized information you need to take your marketing strategy from sputtering along to soaring. We think doing purposeful marketing is fun. So even though we'll be sharing a lot of new ideas and linking out to some thought-provoking content, we're gonna make this briefing feel like the most important part of the flight, the snacks. We know you have many options when you fly, so we hope you'll consider joining us in the air. Subscribe today at feather.co slash inflight. That's feather without the E dot co slash inflight. If you're open to it, I would love to do a quick lightning round with you like we do with all of our guests. Are you down with that? Yeah, let's do it. So the first lightning round question is, um, what's a book you wish you read earlier in your career that you would recommend others read? Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss, right? And the reason I wish I read this book earlier in my career is because when I wasn't always making money, right? I mean, I started, this has been such a colorful journey. Let's just say I wasn't in the business because it paid the most, right? When I got into fundraising. So I always did some kind of consulting work, whether it was on strategy or whether it was helping folks to write grants, whether it was training. And grown and groomed myself to be the full-time entrepreneur that I am today with my firm, Kia Kroon Fundraising and Philanthropy. And there's so many insights for anybody that wants to be the best consultant or build the best consultant and in the, in the establish a strong foundation for your firm, right? This is a must-read Wish I'd known about it and grabbed it earlier. It might have saved me some sleepless nights, many a nights. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. And what I find so helpful in many of those books that talk about entrepreneurship or solo entrepreneurship or consulting businesses is that a lot of how we manage our own work, even inside an organization, those tips can be really helpful because you're still managing a career. You're managing projects and stakeholders internally. And so even if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I don't do consulting, I think a book like Kia just recommended or many others on solo entrepreneurship is how we can design our own career to be successful because we want to continue doing the work. And as we look uh, on LinkedIn and see, you know, layoffs happening and we're kind of in this midst where we're realizing that unless we kind of take ownership of how we're managing our careers, we can fall victim to just like corporate changes or big organizations saying, oh, we don't have enough funding. We're going to let you go. So managing your own career in or outside an organization is a must as we do this purposeful work. Absolutely. And that's one thing I'm proud of, managing your career and even your brand. Mm. I've had a brand and wasn't always so thoughtful about how I was managing it. Absolutely. The second question in the lightning round is, what's an axiom or truth that you come back to often within your work? You know, for example, one of mine is take chances, make mistakes and get messy, which was inspired by the great Miss Frizzle from Magic School Bus uh, back in the day. What's one of your axioms that you go back to, Kia? To trust your gut. This work requires a great deal of emotional intelligence. And I think that that gut feeling, that intuition, that kind of makes some folks a little crazy. Like when I worked with the black engineers and I'd say my gut 
is telling me this or I have a hunch and they're like, okay, we don't know what that means. We're engineers, right? But it's that intuition, that emotional intelligence that, you know, like where you're compelled to say or do or, or experiment or try something. It never fails me. So I always tell people to go with their gut intuition. Absolutely. Well, I've valued all the conversation. And one of the last questions I had for you is we've talked about how the philanthropic industry have celebrated strides made in DEI and diversity. What should be the priority in 2023 and beyond? Like, what's the next thing we need to work on and prioritize as an industry, as fundraising professionals, as it relates to diversity and continuing to lean into that as a growth strategy, not just a cultural initiative? Absolutely. I think that vectors must align to where this is not viewed as, you know, something that kind of comes and goes to where organizations, philanthropies alike are really concretizing inclusion are really focused on creating more inclusive and equitable strategies putting policies behind it, right? I'm going to be really, really frank and candid. It's 2023. And I personally have observed that, you know, there's been like some some retrenchment or like some backsliding. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm seeing more and more corporate funds and more corporate programs that were created three years ago to benefit black and brown communities, retrenching, like the work is done and, you know, they can kind of, you know, clap and celebrate. Well, yeah, there's still great work to be done. I think that that's what it's going to take is philanthropies and organizations really, really operationalizing this and ratifying policies to attack things that inhibit inclusion in order for there to be any kind of measurable, durable change inside of workplace cultures, but even inside of how philanthropy does what it does, whose funds are going to you know, um, what kinds of folks are being recruited, right? It's vital to your recruitment strategy. It's vital to your charitable giving strategy. It's vital to your code of conduct or code of arms or however you define your internal operations is vital to your core values. Otherwise, it just feels very performative and you run the risk of looking like somebody that jumped on the bandwagon after the murder of George Floyd because it sounded like something great to do and felt like the right thing to do, but is no longer a priority. It absolutely is. Mm. And it should be evermore. Yeah. That checking yourself for performative versus durable investment. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And I think that's a, a, a strong takeaway we'll end on. Kia. So grateful for your advocacy and your leadership and the voice that you give and the platform you give to other voices. So grateful to have you and thank you for giving of your time and experience today. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight.
I'm trying to get used to this webcam. When I look at the webcam, does it look uh, yeah. like I'm it, looking? It looks where like you're I looking at me. Be? Yeah, like I think it's I'm good. Yeah, mine's or? all the way up here, so I never okay. get it right. Okay. So I've just stopped trying. <laughs> so I just kind of I I want to focus on you as the as part of the interview. So it always looks like I'm looking down a little bit. Sure. Um. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Well, I'll just yeah, well, pause real quick, and are. then I will do my little intro. Uh, I just like blanked on my intro. <laughs> <laughs>